Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's 2022. Time and that's marches all we're going to say about it. <laughs> yep. Time marches on and turns us to dust. So, whoop, whoop. <laughs> I mean, that could be our new tagline. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it positive, I guess, <laughs> but it is it true. Is factual. It is a factual thing. And that's thing. what we're here for. Facts. Despite all our, about facts. despite our podcast name, you know, it was really discouraging. <laughs> so sometimes <laughs> I will go uh, total tangent. Sometimes I'll like, you know, I'll search our podcast name, you know, see, sure. see if anybody's said anything nice about us lately. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's you know, sometimes nice. it's fruitful. But when you do search like quotation mark misinformation in mm-hmm. like Twitter or something like that, you just get all the people talking about the single word 1S misinformation, but they yep. don't know how to spell it. And so it yep. just looks like they're just talking shit about our podcast, <laughs> even though it's like, clearly it has nothing. No, like clearly these people don't, don't listen to our podcast, but um, yeah, they're just talking about how, you know, this is a bunch of misinformation and this is, mm-hmm. this is all they're getting is misinformation left and right and center and all that. And it's, you know, yeah, I mean, little did we know, Yeah, you know, four years ago, we were like, oh, this is such a, it's cute. such a clever name. It's cute. And then, and, and then Facebook. Uh, <laughs> and then, oh, uh, no. Anyway. Um, there was, uh, a, there was one podcast, like, you know, Twitter account that had like a prompt for like the name of your podcast is what's going to happen in 2022 or like is a major thing that's going to happen in 2022. And I just responded, Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Oh, it was pod chaser. I oh. it up. Yeah. Pod chaser was like, what's the, yeah. The name of your podcast is a hint at a major event coming in 2022. What should we expect? And yeah, I mean, it's a good thing we didn't name our podcast like asteroids. <laughs> Fiery asteroids destroying everything. That's the name of our podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because it doesn't really relate to everything we talk about, but you know, it was catchy. Would have put us to the top of the charts, you know, would have whenever yes. people are searching for us. <laughs> Asteroid killing everyone. Like, hey, there's a podcast about this. <laughs> Hosted by two funny ladies who don't have anything to do with asteroids. Um, First off, I wanted to start off. This has nothing to do with my topic, uh-huh. but I just finished an incredible book. I'm, of course, late to the game, like I always am. Like, I don't know how many times people are like, oh, my God, you should read this book. Oh, my God, you should read this. Uh, you should watch this movie. Oh, my gosh, this TV show is so good. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. And everyone talks about it, and then it dies down, mm-hmm. and the new thing comes up. And then, of course, me, like four years later, I'm like, oh, my God, have you ever watched this? And everyone's like, yeah, Lauren, we told you about it. Shut up. Yeah, Lauren, sure Game of Thrones haven't. has been off the air for three years now. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the mother of dragons. You're going to be really disappointed uh, eventually. Just you wait. Um, but I f- started and finished today Susanna Clark's Piranese, um, which is her second novel. Mm. Uh, her first one being Do- uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which I also loved, which she wrote 16 years ago. Yeah, again. I was going to say I've heard of that one. Yeah, again, mm-hmm. I'm... You know, death comes for us all. Because uh, I like I read that book as soon as it came out, and I love, love, loved it. Because it's one of those books that like it's like a fantasy novel, but it's like 
kind of based in history. It's like a history mm-hmm. fantasy. Um, and she creates these incredible like worlds where there's like footnotes on almost every page. It's like mm-hmm. really in depth. And I love that book. It's really a slog. It's like, I think like <laughs> oh, 900 pages or something uh-huh. insane like that. Um, and then she just came out with a, a new book called Piranese uh, in 2020. And our friend of the podcast, Andrew, read it and he really loved it. And there was only one book left in our entire county. And I was like, I'll read it because it's only it's like a slim 240 pages. Ooh. And I a breezy read love, love, loved it. Love, love, loved it. So good. Like, I can't even if I was to describe it. It would like give everything away. So just okay. take my word for it. It's really good. It's definitely very Susanna Clark. There's, you know, a fantasy element to it without it being like super nerdy. It's told in a first person account in a series of like journal entries. Mm-hmm. It's a quick read. It's so good. I highly recommend it. Mm. I loved it. I like ran down the stairs where Steve was in the basement. And I was like, you have to read this book. It's so good. And so he's probably reading it right now because I guilted him into actually reading. He's so. probably reading it right now. I hope so. Um, or he's playing Subnautica. We'll see. Whereas the last three books I read were Hop on Pop, You're My Little <laughs> Christmas Cookie, and Library Babies. So. You know, I heard You're My Little Christmas Cookie was uh, an award winner. You know what? It's a little derivative. Um, Is it? There's a mm. lot in that series. Uh, we started with You're My Little Pumpkin Pie, and it's okay, and it's very sweet. But you know, it feels like they they went with one formula, and mm, all the books slump. follow it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really a shame. That's too bad. It's a waste of talent. <laughs> so uh, again, making a huge left turn on this one. You have no idea what I don't, <laughs> what yeah. topic I'm doing. Normally, today. we talk about it beforehand, or like we're yeah, entering like, our information for each other, like you know, yeah. to prep for things. And I am going into this episode totally blind, yeah, or deaf, well, or whatever. Um, I don't know what I don't know what we're talking about tonight. I just know well, that it's probably not John Waters. <laughs> Hopefully oh, not. No, uh, Lauren's follow up is. Um, <laughs> Oh, no, a I didn't depth, Waters. An in-depth uh, episode on pink flamingos. Yes, I'm going to do a beat-for-beat beat read, with c- complete with character voices and sound effects of pink flamingos for you, Julia, and I'm going to force you to sit and listen to it. No. Um, <laughs> so last weekend, I sat on the floor of my living room in pure and perfect silence trying to think of a topic that I could do that wouldn't take me like three and a half weeks to do. Because yes. I mean, there's tons of topics I could do, but they would in, you know, yeah. require a lot more info. Yeah. So this popped into my head and I just thought, you know what? It's an oldie, but a goodie. You know, there's a lot of information that I didn't know about about this. Uh, it's a great story. It's a mystery. It's it's cool. So today, you and I, Julia, we are going to be talking about the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Just real uplifting. Just really (laughs) kicking off 2022 with just like a really happy story. Okay. First of all, everyone involved in this is dead, 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 dead. Like absolutely 100% dead. So there's one, one. Two, Charles Lindbergh was an asshole. So we're going to talk about that. Too. All right. So we lucky are going to talk. Lindy. About, yeah, lucky Lindy. So we're going to talk about Lindbergh baby kidnapping. But first off, we're going to talk a little bit about who Charles Lindbergh is and also his wife, Anne Morrow Lindbergh. So 
Charles was born in Michigan in 1902, but he was raised in Minnesota and Washington, D.C. since his father was a congressman from Minnesota for, from 1907 to 1917. Um, he was also one of the few congressmen opposed to the U.S. entering World War I. Um, and this idea of, like, American isolationism mm-hmm. um, would also continue to his son. So we will talk about that. Mm-hmm. So... Charles was obsessed with flying from an early age, and he actually earned money for flying lessons by working as a wing walker and a parachutist across Ooh. the western U.S. He did what was known as barnstorming, where he would just, like, you know, kind of travel around with these, like, hobbyist pilots and, like, do entertaining shows and that cool. kind of thing. Um, he eventually spent a year in flight training with the U.S. Army Air Force, um, and actually only 18 of the 104 cadets who started flight training a year earlier Remained when Lindbergh graduated first overall in his class in March of 1925. Not a high retention rate there. No, definitely not. Um, He earned his Army pilot's wings and a commission as a second lieutenant in the Air Service Reserve Corps. Um, He then actually became an airmail pilot after the Army had really no use for active duty pilots. This was, again, 1925. We're between the wars here. Um, So, you know, they couldn't use him, so he decided to get a job with the post office. Nope. So the the world's first nonstop transatlantic flight was made in 1919 by British aviators John Alcock and Arthur Witten Brown, um, and they left St. John's, Newfoundland on June 14th, 1919, and arrived in Ireland the following day. So around the same time, French-born New York hotelier Raymond Ortigue was approached by Augustus Post, who was the secretary of the Aero Club of America. And so he was prompted to put up a $25,000 award for the first successful nonstop transatlantic flight, specifically between New York City and Paris in oh. either direction. Okay. So what they wanted to happen was someone would would take on this mantle within five years after the establishment of this prize, right? Mm. So no one really picked it up um, when that kind of limit lapsed in 1924 without a real serious attempt, Ortigue renewed the offer for another five years, and this time it attracted a number of well-known, highly experienced, and well-financed contenders, none of whom were successful. Okay. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So all these people are like really, you know, I should say people, men. All these (laughs) men were really well-known pilots. They were super experienced. They had a ton of money backing them. They still couldn't do it. So... Charles Lindbergh was like, why not me? So uh, this funding, his operation for like doing this was a challenge due to his relative obscurity. But two St. Louis businessmen eventually obtained a $15,000 bank loan. And Lindbergh contributed uh, $2,000 of his own money, which is um, in now money is like $29,000. And this was for a prize of $25,000? Yes, exactly. Okay, which is a lot of money. Which is a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. So um, he put up basically $30,000 of his own money from a salary as an airmail pilot, and another $1,000 was donated by the company that eventually made the Spirit of St. Louis. Mm -hmm. So the total of $18,000 was far less than what was available to Lindbergh's rivals, and they tried to get a plane from a couple of companies, just kind of like buy it off the rack. Oh. But finally, the much smaller Ryan Aircraft Company of San Diego agreed to design and build a custom monoplane for $10,580, and a deal was formally closed. So this plane, very famous, it was dubbed the Spirit of St. Louis. It was fabric-covered. It was single-seat. It was a single-engine high-wing monoplane. It was designed jointly by Lindbergh 
and Ryan's chief engineer, Donald A. Hall. So he has a plane. He's got some financing. He's ready to go. He's packed his snacks. He's packed his snacks. His He's tunes. got a big bottle of water. He's got his podcasts all downloaded and ready to go. He's going to fly across the ocean. So in the early morning of Friday, May 20th, 1927, he took off from Roosevelt Field, Long Island. His monoplane was loaded with 450 U.S. gallons of fuel that was strained repeatedly to avoid fuel line blockage. Oof. So the fully loaded aircraft weighed 2.7 tons with takeoff hampered by a muddy, rain-soaked runway. So he didn't have, like, a great start. So over the next 33 and a half hours, Lindbergh and the Spirit faced many challenges, which included skimming over storm clouds at 10,000 feet and wave tops as low as 10 feet. So the aircraft fought icing, flew blind through fog for several hours, and Lindbergh navigated only by dead reckoning, which is basically <coughs> like you see, like, a, a single you know, like fixed spot. And then you kind of like estimate where you are from that fixed spot. Mm -hmm. Apparently he was never proficient at navigating by the sun and stars. And he actually rejected radio navigation gear because he thought it was heavy and unreliable. Um, He was actually fortunate that the winds over the Atlantic kind of canceled each other out. Mm. And so it gave him zero wind drift. And thus he had accurate navigation during the long flight over this, you know, basically huge expanse of featureless ocean. So he landed at Le Bourget Aerodrome at 10.22 p.m. on Saturday, May 21st. Uh, The airfield was not marked on his map, and Lindbergh knew only (laughs) that it was some seven miles northeast of the city. He was like, I'll get there. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I'll find it. Um, He initially mistook it for some large industrial complex because of the bright lights spreading out in all directions. In fact, it was the headlights of tens of thousands of spectators' cars caught in the largest traffic jam in Paris history in their attempt to be present for his landing. Wow. So he lands, and a crowd estimating at 150,000 people stormed the field. They dragged him out of the cockpit, and they carried him around above their heads for nearly a half an hour. He's like, oh, my God, can I please go to the bathroom? (laughs) (laughs) I have to pee so bad. I've been peeing in Snapple bottles for 33 and a half hours. Oh, my God. I just want to see a toilet. Anyway. (laughs) So... (laughs) There was some damage done to the spirit. Um, I guess a lot of people were like tearing off the fuselage. Yeah, yeah I yeah. can absolutely see that, like cutting off pieces of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, because, you know, souvenir hunters were looking for it. So um, they finally the pilot and the plane reached the safety of a nearby hangar with the aid of French military flyers, soldiers, and police. Um, and also among the crowd were two future Indian prime ministers uh, Jawaharlal Nehru and his daughter Indira Gandhi. So they got oh. to see him uh, land in That's an Paris. interesting fact. Yeah, it's a good fact. So this man became world famous in a way that is almost hard to imagine in the 1920s. He was instantaneously the most famous man on the planet. He was awarded a ton of medals from countries across the world. He was promoted to colonel in the U.S. Army. Just like he flew across the ocean and they were like, Colonel! Um, He was given a ticker tape parade in New York City in June. Um, Mm. He was honored as the first Time Magazine's Man of the Year Mm -hmm. when he appeared on that magazine's cover at age 25 on January 2nd of 1928. He actually remains the youngest man of the year ever. Oh, that's pretty interesting, too. That's a good tidbit. Um, So the winner of the 1930 Best Woman Aviator of the Year Award, Eleanor Smith Sullivan, who is also an amazingly cool person, she was um, the youngest pilot to receive her wings. She was 16. She was like, inc- she was amazing. 
But she had said before Lindbergh's flight, quote, people seem to think that we aviators were from outer space or something. But after Charles Lindbergh's flight, we could do no wrong. It's hard to describe the impact Lindbergh had on people. Even the first walk on the moon doesn't come close. Wow. The 20s was such an innocent time and people were still so religious. I think they felt like this man was sent by God to do this. And it changed aviation forever because all of a sudden, the Wall Streeters were banging on doors looking for airplanes to invest in. Hmm. We'd been standing on our heads trying to get them to notice us. But after Lindbergh, suddenly everyone wanted to fly and there weren't even enough planes to carry them. Interesting. So... It's like almost like the space race kind of thing, right? Yeah. Where it's like, every, you know, people want to be pilots. People want to fly. There's this like mm -hmm. sort of like exploration, you know, doing things that other people can't do kind of thing. So this really like became a thing. So let's talk about Charles a little bit in his personal life. Because this guy. <laughs> so in his autobiography, he derided pilots he met as womanizing barnstormers. He also criticized army cadets for their facile approach to relationships. He wrote that the ideal romance was stable and long-term with a woman with a keen intellect, good health, and strong genes. Okay. His, hmm. his quote, experience in breeding animals on our farm, having taught him the importance of good heredity. Okay. Yeah, so this would be a lovely hint to his social and political beliefs later in life, which I'll get to in like just a second, but let's talk about his wife. So Anne Morrow Lindbergh, uh, she was born in 1906. She was the daughter of Dwight Morrow, um, who, as a partner at J.P. Morgan & Co., had acted as a financial advisor to Lindbergh. Okay. Um, he was also the U.S. ambassador to Mexico in 1927. And so um, Lindbergh was invited by Morrow on a goodwill tour to Mexico, along with humorist and actor Will Rogers, and that's when Lindbergh met Anne in Mexico City in 27. Okay. So they were married on May 27, 1929. They had six children— um, Charles Augustus Jr., the, you know, baby in question, uh, John Morrow, Land Morrow, Anne, uh, Scott, and Reeve. Land? Um, land, like a like broad expanse earth? of. Okay. Yes, like soil. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Um, Lindbergh also taught Anne how to fly, and she accompanied and assisted him in much of his exploring and charting of air routes. Oh. Um, she was the first American woman to earn a first-class glider's pilot's license, and uh, throughout her life, she was an established nonfiction author and environmentalist up until her death in 2001 at age 94. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So she was a badass. Like, he taught her how to fly, but she stuck with it and was just, like, right next to him on a lot of his flights. And they did a lot of world touring together, and she managed to, like, pop out six kids in eight years, which is insane. So... Um, also just back to Charlie over here. Uh, he saw his children for only a few months a year. Uh, he kept track of each child's infractions, including such things as gum chewing and insisted that Anne track every penny of household expenses in account books. So he was a super fun guy, obviously. Um, he was also a Nazi sympathizer. Um, he was an American isolationist in, uh, World War II. Um, he was a big fan of eugenics, <laughs> like uh. really into like maintaining the pure white bloodline of, you know, ancient European, you know, heredity and that kind of thing. Um, he was really, really against socialism. And that's partially why he like sided with the Germans, mm. uh, because he would rather side with, you know, quote unquote, purely European blood than he would with um, barbaric Asiatic uh yeah, heredity. So 
he was cool, super cool in that Ugh. way. He was also a raging anti-Semite. Like the man could not shut up about how the Jews are like controlling everything and like the banks and oh my like, God. our media. Like it, literally up until his death, he was like the Jews. Like he was just <laughs> he was those are his last words. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like they did this to me. He was just an. He sounded like an absolute. Oh my gosh. Also, not for nothing, he had not one, not two, but three secret mistresses Mm -hmm. and uh, I think three or four secret children. Oh, my God. Two of the mistresses were sisters. (gasps) And they were all, ironically enough, in Germany. (sighs) Yeah. So I don't know if that was like influenced why he was like so sympathetic to the Nazis oh or whatever, but he definitely like had three mistresses that he kept in touch with his entire life to the point where like 10 days before he died, he wrote one of his daughters, his secret daughters and was like, please, 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 please do not say anything about how you're my daughter oh to my, my wife or my kids, my legitimate kids. So his autobiography was like, you know what uh, airplane flyers are too womanizing. <laughs> Not me, though. Not me. <laughs> Not me. I stick with my beautiful, my hearty, beautiful, white, delightful, <laughs> and our and our very European yes. children. Yes, robust, blue-eyed, blonde-haired children. Yeah. So this guy is kind of the worst. So, <clears throat> but his wife is great. Oh yeah, and as far she, I will say that her. I think her drawback is that she had 100% drank the Kool-Aid on Charles. Mm-hmm. Like, it, she had written in her diary, like, Charles is right. Like, I don't know why everyone's giving such a hard time. Like, she was just, like, super oh, into boy. Charles. And she, at one point, like, one of her children discovered that they had secret siblings and, like, was fairly public about it. So she must have found out at some point. Yeah. Because she lived to 2001, and he died in 74. So she must have found out at some point. But as far as I know, there isn't any like comment she had made about being totally betrayed. Although oh she gosh. did also have an affair with her doctor in the 1950s. So, you know, no one is all good and no one is all bad. But Charles Lindbergh is mostly bad. Anyway. So the man like 70- can stay awake for 33 hours. Oh, and yeah. And, he, as- and God damn, could he fly a plane? Woo! Could he fly, fly a plane? Fly the hell out of a plane. Oh, and he also, sorry, we're not even getting to the kidnapping yet, but he also um, helped invent um, an artificial heart. What? Yeah, his sister-in-law had like a heart problem and he was like, you know what they should do? Invent something where you can have the heart on the outside. And so he like contacted a scientist and they were like, let's make something. And so they patented it. Wow. Yeah, so he he's also an inventor. So there's that. So yeah, I'd say he's like 80% bad, 20% good. <laughs> I mean, that that might change. Anyway, so the kidnapping at approximately 10 p.m. on March 1st, 1932. That's a timestamp. Uh-huh. Um, the Lindbergh. <laughs> That's for you, Mara. Yeah. The Lindbergh's nurse, Betty Gao, found the 20-month-old Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. was not with his mother, Anne, who had just come out of the bathtub. Hmm. It was a, one of those things where it's like, wait, you don't have him? I thought you had him. So Gao then alerted Charles Lindbergh, who immediately went to the child's room where he found a ransom note containing bad handwriting and grammar in an envelope on the windowsill. Taking a gun, he went around the house and grounds with the family butler, whose name was Ollie Waitley. Um, They found impressions in the ground under the window of the baby's room and pieces of a cleverly designed wooden ladder and a baby's blanket. 
And wait till he telephoned the Hopewell Police Department while Lindbergh contacted his attorney and friend, Henry Breckenridge, and the New Jersey State Police. So this is when the Lindberghs had like settled in, um, I believe, eastern New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> Hopewell Borough Police and New Jersey State Police officers conducted an extensive search of the home and its surrounding area. And after midnight, a fingerprint expert examined the ransom note and ladder, but no usable fingerprints or footprints were found, which led experts to conclude that the kidnapper or kidnappers wore gloves and had some type of cloth on the soles of their shoes. Huh. Also, or the fact that, I don't know, 400 people were trekking around the house. Uh, Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, There were no adult fingerprints found in the baby's room, which I find suspicious because clearly there were adults in that room right like up until recently um also the brief handwritten ransom note had many spelling and grammar irregularities as mentioned before which was strange so at the bottom of the note were two interconnected blue circles surrounding a red circle with a hole punched through the red circle and two more holes to the left and right huh so on further examination of the ransom note by professionals they found that it was all written by the same person and so they determined that due to the odd English, the writer must have been German and had spent some but little time in America. Uh-huh. Um, at one point in the ransom note, he uses the term good, but he spells it gut, G-U-T. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what kind of gave him away. <clears throat> uh, the FBI then found a sketch artist to make a portrait of the man they believed to be the kidnapper. Um, they also tried to look for the ladder that was used in the crime. Uh, they realized that the ladder was not built correctly, but was built by someone who knew how to construct with wood and had prior experience in building. And so slivers of the ladder had been examined, and they believed that the examination of this evidence would lead to the kidnapper, which it actually did. Mm. The spiel is afoot. Yes, it's it's uh, uh, they're onto it. So on March 2nd, 1932... J. Edgar Hoover, the attorney general and FBI director, got in contact with the Trenton, New Jersey Police Department, and he told the New Jersey police that they could contact the FBI or any resources and would provide any assistance if needed. So clearly, like, the most famous man on earth, his baby has been abducted. Like, the up, the people in the high levels are going to yeah, get on and top of this. like, this would be the equivalent of, God forbid, Blue Ivy Carter getting oh. kidnapped. Th- oh. This is... Don't even speak truth I to know, that. I know, I <laughs> know. <laughs> A, a pox on me but like that would be this equivalent oh absolutely days. it would be this equivalent like people would absolutely lose their minds this this person would the never most famous the most famous like child man yeah the most famous person on earth yes uh, universally beloved uh yes people named their children after him yep. created products after him uh, yep. sold things in his likeness etc and his child is is kidnapped Yeah, people were in hysterics. Um, So in September in 1933, which was later, the investigation was still in process. So this is when FDR proclaimed that the Federal Bureau of Investigation would have full jurisdiction over this case. And this became official in October of 1933. Because they were like, the police, they were like, New Jersey. New Jersey. God, duh. You're (laughs) killing me. So (laughs) put down the gabagool. (laughs) Put down the gabagool and maybe do your job. You know what I'm saying? God. <laughs> oh my, my gosh. And then we, New Jersey. We, we've just isolated <laughs> we've all just of New Jersey. just lost New Jersey. New Jersey. <laughs> so as you may imagine, word of the kidnapping spread quickly. Um, hundreds of people converged on the estate. They destroyed any footprint yeah. evidence. Um, along with police, well-connected and well-intentioned people arrived at the Lindbergh estate. Um, military colonels offered their aid, although only one had law enforcement expertise. Herbert Norman Schwarzkopf, 
superintendent of the New Jersey State Police, is who is the father related, of- Is this Storm and Norman? Yes, this is, he is the <sighs> father of Storm and Norman. Absolutely. So there's just, it's, everything's connected. Everything's connected. So Lindbergh and these men speculated that the kidnapping was perpetuated by organized crime figures. Well, they, they were in the New letter Jersey. Was written, yeah, I know. <laughs> they thought that the letter was written by someone who spoke German as his native language again. And at this time, Charles Lindbergh used his influence to control the direction of the investigation. So now he's in charge, you know. Because <laughs> no one knows better than his, you know, pure, perfect white supremacist brain. Anyway, <clears throat> so they contacted Mickey Rosner, who was a Broadway hanger-on, uh, rumored to know mobsters. And Rosner turned to two speakeasy owners, Salvatore Salvi Spitale and Irving Bitts, for aid. <laughs> I know you're laughing at that, but it's, <laughs> it's true. That was his name. Um, Lindbergh quickly endorsed the duo and appointed them his intermediaries to deal with the mob. What are their names? What's the first guy's name? You got Salvatore Sally Spitale. Spitale and, and Spitale. Irving. And Irving Bitts. So Spitalian bits. Yep, Spitalian bits. That's pretty good. That's a good. I know. That's a good duo right there. It's a good duo. I'm telling you. So, so several organized crime figures, surprise, surprise, notably Al Capone, Willie Moretti, Joe Adonis, and Abner Swillman, spoke from prison, offering to help return the baby in exchange for money or for legal favors. Shock. Um, specifically, Capone offered assistance in return from being released from prison under the pretense that his assistance would be more effective. Um, this was quickly denied by the authorities. So, of course, you know, it just becomes an absolute free-for-all when they're like, it's the mob. And so, of course, the people in the mob are like, oh, yeah, I could totally get you the name <laughs> of the guy who did it. I know him. Just give me $10,000. Yep. I'd be happy yeah, to turn him in. Yeah, just let me out. And, uh, yeah, don't worry. I'll track that guy down. And I, gotta, I, gotta, I know a couple of guys. So don't you worry about it. Yeah. So the morning after the kidnapping, authorities notified President Herbert Hoover of the crime. And at the time, kidnapping was classified as a state crime, and the case did not seem to have any grounds for federal involvement. So Attorney General William D. Mitchell met with Hoover and announced that the whole machinery of the Department of Justice would be set in motion to cooperate with the New Jersey authorities. How long has it been since this baby was kidnapped at this point? So this was, th these are all these things that are happening like around the same time, like okay. within a week or two. Okay. Kind of thing. Um, so the Bureau of Investigation, later the FBI, was authorized to investigate the case, uh, while the United States Coast Guard, the U.S. Customs Service, the U.S. Immigration Service, and the Washington, D.C. police were told their services might be required. Oh, my So all gosh. of these people are, like, ready and raring Stand to go. Stand down. Yeah. Yeah. So New Jersey officials announced a $25,000 reward for the safe return of Little Lindy. <laughs> and then the Lindbergh family offered an additional $50,000 reward of their own. So at this time, the total reward of $75,000, which is approximately equivalent to $1.1 million oh my gosh. in today's money, was a tremendous sum of money because the nation was in the midst of the Great Depression during yes. this time, as you may imagine. <laughs> so on March 6th, a new ransom letter arrived by mail at the Lindbergh home. So the letter was postmarked March 4th in Brooklyn, and it carried those perforated red and blue okay. circles. Okay, okay. So the ransom had been raised to $70,000. It had originally been fifty. dollars So a third ransom note postmarked from Brooklyn, and also including the secret marks, arrived in Breckenridge's mail. And the note told the Lindberghs that John Condon should be the intermediary between the Lindberghs and the kidnappers and requested notification in a newspaper that the third note had been received. Oh, my gosh. Um, instructions specific to the size of the box the money should come in and warned the family not to con contact the police. So who's John Condon? Who Why is, is John Condon? Yeah, the intermediary. So 
John F. Condon was a well-known Bronx kind of personality, and he was a retired school teacher. Already you're seeing what's coming. He had, uh, independently of everybody, offered $1,000 if the kidnapper would turn the child over to a Catholic priest. Okay. Thinking that that was like a safe, like, middleman. Yeah. Um, Condon received a letter reportedly written by the kidnappers and it authorized Condon to be their intermediary with Lindbergh. And so hmm. Lindbergh was like, great, he accepted the letter as genuine. And following the kidnappers' latest instructions, Condon placed uh, a classified ad in the New York American reading, Money is Ready, Jeffsy. What? Which, which <laughs> was... Condon's like self-imposed like secret nickname. Oh my God. You can't give yourself a secret nickname. You can't, you just, you can't, you can't Jesus, give yourself John. a nickname. Yeah. So then he waited for further like, instructions from the culprit. Help me Spike. Yeah. My name's Shades. Like, come on. No one takes that seriously. T-Bone. <laughs> T-Bone. Yeah. So, and it's Jaffsy. It's J-A-F-S-I-E. Like, I have no idea what a Jaffsy is. Cute. It's not a cool nickname. No. It's not cute. Yeah. So a meeting between Jaffsey and, and a representative of the group that claimed to be the kidnappers was eventually scheduled for late one evening at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. So according to Condon, the man sounded foreign, but he stayed in the shadows during the conversation. And so he was unable to see, get a close look at this guy's face. The man said that his name was John and he related his story. He said he was a Scandinavian sailor, part of a gang of three men and two women and the baby was being held on a boat unharmed, but it would return only for ransom. Um, when Condon expressed doubt that, you know, quote unquote, John actually had the baby, he promised some proof. The kidnapper would soon return the baby's sleeping suit. And the stranger then asked Condon, would I burn if the package were dead? Meaning, would I get the electric chair if the baby was dead? So when questioned further, he assured Condon that the baby was alive, which is not great. <laughs> so... On March 16th, Condon received a toddler sleeping suit by mail and a seventh ransom note. And after Lindbergh identified the sleeping suit, uh, Condon placed a new ad in the home news. Money is ready. No cops. No secret service. I come alone like last time. Oh. And on April 1st, Condon received a letter saying it was time for the ransom to be delivered. So the ransom was packaged in uh, like a wooden box that was custom made in the hope that it could later be identified. And the ransom money included a number of gold certificates since gold certificates were about to be withdrawn from circulation. And so it was hoped that greater attention would be drawn to anyone spending okay. them. Mm -hmm. um, the bills were not marked, but their serial numbers were recorded. Mm -hmm. um, and on April 2nd, Condon was given a note by an intermediary who was an unknown cab driver. Like, you know, the, the kidnapper handed it to a cab driver and said, go give this to this guy. Uh, Condon then met John and told him that they had been able to raise only $50,000 but the man accepted the money and gave Condon a note saying that the child was in the care of two innocent women. So over a month later, oh my gosh. Right, this man has the money, mm -hmm. no sign of baby. On May 12th, the delivery truck driver Orville Wilson and his assistant William Allen pulled to the side of a road about four and a half miles south of the Lindbergh home. When Allen went into a grove of trees to pee, he discovered the body of a toddler. The skull was badly fractured and the body decomposed with evidence of scavenging by animals. There was indications of an attempt at a hasty burial. Mm. Um, the nurse, Betty Gao, identified the baby as the missing infant from the overlapping toes of the right foot and a shirt that she had made. Mm. Um, it appeared that the child had been killed by a blow to the head. And the medical examiner determined that the baby had been killed at least two months prior. So probably had died the night he yeah. was kidnapped. Yeah. Um, Lindbergh insisted on cremation, which is interesting. We'll get to later. 
Um, Condon was also questioned by police and his home searched, but nothing suggestive was found. And Charles Lindbergh actually stood by Condon during this time. So after discovery of the body, Condon still remained unofficially involved in the case. Um, to the public, he became a suspect and in some circles was absolutely vilified. Mm-hmm. So for the next two years, he visited police departments and pledged to find, quote, Cemetery John, which was like his nickname for the kidnapper. Um, Condon's actions regarding the case were increasingly flamboyant. On one occasion, while he was riding a city bus, he claimed that he saw a suspect on the street and announcing his secret identity, I am Jaffsy, <laughs> ordered the bus to stop. So the driver, startled, complied, and he darted from the bus, although his target eluded him, of course. Oh my gosh. Um, his actions were also criticized as exploitative when he agreed to appear in a vaudeville act regarding the kidnapping, which is just in super poor taste. Uh, Liberty Magazine also published a serialized account of Condon's involvement in the Lindbergh kidnapping under the title Jaffsy Tells All. He was really married to this Jaffsy thing. Um, But he clearly was just like trying to get some cash out of this as much as he could. So the investigators were basically at a standstill by this point. There were no developments and there wasn't really any evidence. So they decided to turn their attention to tracking the ransom payments. So there was this pamphlet that was prepared with the serial numbers on the ransom bills and 250,000 copies were distributed to businesses, mainly in New York City. Mm-hmm. So a few of the ransom bills appeared in scattered locations, some as far away as Chicago and Minneapolis. Mm. Um, but the people spending the bills was, were never found. So during a 30-month period, a number of the ransom bills were spent throughout New York City. And detectives realized that many of the bills were being spent along the route of the Lexington Avenue subway, which connected the Bronx with the east side of Manhattan, including the German-Austrian neighborhood of Yorkville. Okay. So on September 18th, 1934, a Manhattan bank teller noticed a gold certificate from the ransom, um, a New York license plate number penciled in the bill's margin, which allowed it to be traced to a nearby gas station. Um, The station manager had written down the license number because his customer was acting, quote, suspicious and was, quote, possibly a counterfeiter. So, yeah. So the license plate belonged to a sedan owned by Richard Hauptmann, uh, who lived in the Bronx, who was an immigrant with a criminal record in Germany. So when Hauptmann was arrested, he was carrying a single $20 gold certificate and over $14,000 of the ransom money was found in his garage. (laughs) Oh, So he was arrested, he was interrogated, and he was beaten at least once throughout the following day and night. Uh, He said that the money and other items had been left with him by his friend and former business partner Isidore Fish, and Fish had died on March 29th of 1934, shortly after returning to Germany. Um, Hauptmann stated that he learned only after Fish's death that the shoebox that was left with him contained a considerable sum of money. He kept the money because he claimed that it was owed to him from a business deal that he and Fish had made, and Hauptmann consistently denied any connection to the crime or knowledge that the money in his house was from the ransom. Mm -hmm. However, when the police searched his home, they found a considerable amount of additional evidence that linked him to the crime. Mm. One was a notebook that contained a sketch of the construction of a ladder similar to the one that was found at the home. Um, John Condon's telephone number and his address were discovered written on a closet wall in the house. Uh, Also, a key piece of evidence, a section of wood was discovered in the attic of the home, and after being examined by an expert, it was determined to be an exact match to the wood used in the construction of the ladder found at the scene of the crime. So he was indicted, and he was sent to trial on capital murder charges, and of course, this was called the trial of the century, since the kidnapping itself was called the crime of the century. Um, It was (laughs) described, it was described by H.L. Mencken as, quote, the biggest story since the resurrection, 
Um, in response, Congress passed the so-called Lindbergh Law, which made kidnapping a federal offense if the victim is taken across state lines, or, as in the Lindbergh case, the kidnapper uses, quote, the mail or interstate or foreign commerce in committing or in furtherance of the commission of the offense, such as demanding ransom. Mm, okay. Uh, Houtman went on trial for kidnapping, murder, and extortion on January 2nd, 1935 in this incredible circus-like oh, atmosphere yeah. in Flemington, New Jersey. And he was eventually convicted on February 13th. He was sentenced to death, and he was electrocuted at Trenton State Prison on April 3rd, 1936. So it's been pretty well accepted that the police got their man, but there's still a lot of questions and conspiracy theories as to what actually happened to the Lindbergh baby. So some people think that Charles Jr. was disabled... So Lindbergh had the baby, quote unquote, kidnapped and secretly sent uh, to be raised in Germany or was murdered accidentally or something along those lines. Um, another theory is Lindbergh accidentally killed his son in a prank gone wrong, which is insane to me. It's you don't pull pranks on a two-year-old. Also, not for nothing, Charles Lindbergh did not seem like a fun-loving, prank-loving dude. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. So in the book Crime of the Century, the Lindbergh Kidnapping Hoax, criminal defense attorney Gregory Algren posits Lindbergh climbed a ladder and brought his son out of a window, but dropped the child, killing him. So he hid the body in the woods and then covered up the crime by blaming Hauptmann. I still don't think that's a real thing. Uh, Robert Zorn's 2012 book Cemetery John proposes that Hauptmann was part of a conspiracy with two other German-born men, John and Walter Knoll. And Zorn's father, economist Eugene Zorn, believed that as a teenager, he had witnessed the conspiracy being discussed. Hmm. So there's still like questions about whether or not, you know, Charles Lindbergh was involved. I mean, a lot of the thing with like, he had the baby cremated like immediately was kind of suspicious. Like, was that going to, was viewing the body, was that going to show that he was maybe disabled or said there was something wrong or with him? Or maybe just very upsetting. Yeah. Or maybe it's just really awful. Like the baby was not in great shape. So yeah. So anyway, that's the the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. <laughs> I mean, I say Charles Lindbergh was not a good person, but no one deserves to have their child kidnapped and murdered. I'm I'm going to say that. I know. Wow, what a stand. I'm I know, I I'm a bold person. What can I say? So that was the <laughs> so that was a Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Wow. Yeah, like the yeah, the circus around it and then like mm -hmm. the <laughs> The guy that seemed to, I don't know, he seemed to come out of nowhere and be like, uh, don't worry, I'll be, I'll be the I'll middle man. I'll take care of this. I got yeah. it. I, I got, got it, guys. guys. Call J. me Edgar Jaffsy. Hoover, stand down. <laughs> yeah. Call me Jaffsy. Oh my I got this. That should be the title of this. Call me Jaffsy. Um, so my quiz today um, is, I was very excited about this. <laughs> my quiz today is about famous babies and people named Baby. Question number one. Louise Brown, born in 1978 in the UK, was the world's first baby conceived with in vitro fertilization. The doctors who made the procedure possible had spent 12 years developing the procedure and suffered 80 failed attempts before success with the Browns. This, as you might imagine, garnered a lot of public attention, dubbing Louise the world's first what? Question number two. True or false, none other than actor Humphrey Bogart was the model for the famous Gerber baby who debuted in 1931. Question number three. This bank robber who terrorized the Midwest as public enemy number one was also a partner of the infamous John Dillinger and got his nickname from ostensibly being a short man with a handsome face. His friends just called him Jimmy, though. What doomed professional criminal am I talking about? 
Question number four. In 1980, eight-week-old Azaria Chamberlain went missing from an Australian campsite. While some believe that a dingo had taken the child as her parents claimed, the courts found Azaria's mother, Lindy Chamberlain Crichton, guilty of murder and sentenced her to life in prison. In 1988, a movie was made about this ordeal starring Meryl Streep. What was the name of this movie? Question number five. Singer, songwriter, and producer Babyface has written and produced over 26 number one R&B hits throughout his career and has won 12 Grammy Awards. Over his 45-year career in the business, he has worked with artists like TLC, Patti LaBelle, Lil Wayne, and this sensuous alto singer with whom he wrote the majority of her songs on her first two albums. Who is this another sad love song, Chanteuse? Question number six. When an 18-month-old Texas toddler fell down a 22-foot well, the entire country rallied for her rescue. The difficult feat, which took 58 hours, was broadcast live on CNN. Dubbed Everybody's Baby, she was pulled from the well on October 16, 1987, and after 15 surgeries, she ultimately regained her full health with just a few lasting signs of her ordeal. Who is this well baby? Question number seven. The 3D animation of a baby dancing the cha-cha was one of the first and most well-known viral videos of all time. Creating in the late 90s using innovative 3D character animation technology, the video was a huge development in internet technology, and the dancing baby went on to appear on multiple television shows, including this legal comedy drama series which made liberal use of fantasy sequences. Question number eight. The third child of the late king of pop, Prince Michael Jackson II was born in 2002 through the process of artificial insemination. Michael famously dangled his newborn child from the fifth floor window of a Berlin hotel, fueling a media frenzy that questioned his sanity and his ability to be a father. However, even to this day, he is referred to by the strange nickname given to him by MJ. What is Prince Michael's nickname? Question number nine. The 1987 rom-com Dirty Dancing features a character nicknamed Baby. Sure. But my question is about one of the songs featured in the film, the incomparable She's Like the Wind, written and sung by a true Renaissance man and star of the film. Who am I talking about? And finally, question number 10. The classic horror film Rosemary's Baby is about a young wife in Manhattan who suspects that her elderly neighbors are members of a satanic cult and are grooming her in order to use her baby for their rituals. Spoiler alert, he's the Antichrist. The film made a star of the doe-eyed, short-haired actress who played the titular Rosemary. Who is this quintessential 60s actress? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be back with your answers. Mr. Charlie Lindbergh, he flew to old Berlin. Got him a big iron cross and he flew right back again to Washington, Washington. Mrs. Charlie Lindbergh, she come dressed in red, said I'd like to sleep in that pretty white house bed in Washington, Washington. Lindy said to Annie, we'll get there by and by, but we'll have to split the bed up with Wheeler, Clark, and I in Washington. Washington Hitler wrote to Lindy said do your very worst Lindy started an outfit that he called America first in Washington Washington 
What a happy quiz. I mean, barring the Rosemary's Baby at the end. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I figured I had to like lighten the mood a little bit. Lighten you know? it up, lighten it mm-hmm. up. Yeah. All right. All right. I have, uh, I have some, have some thoughts. Okay, great. All right. Good, good. I'm excited. All right, here we go. Question number one. Louise Brown, born in 1978 in the UK, was the world's first baby conceived with in vitro fertilization. The doctors who made the procedure possible had spent 12 years developing the procedure and suffered 80 failed attempts before success with the Browns. This, as you might imagine, garnered a lot of public attention, dubbing Louise the world's first what? They called her the test tube baby. They called her the test tube baby. And you know what? She's fine. <laughs> she's, she's doing do- great. She's doing great. I have no follow-ups because Louise is fine. <laughs> all right question number two in vitro is latin for in glass so that's why that's how you know like vitrine um venetra you know all those Mm -hmm. oh my god i had no idea but that makes perfect sense Mm -hmm. you know yesterday steve and i were watching a documentary about booksellers it was more interesting than it sounds and at one point someone said handwritten you know because it was a manuscript and steve steve's head snapped to me so quickly he went, oh, my God, does manuscript mean handwritten? I said, yeah, Steve. Yeah. Man, Manus, for hand, hand, script, script. Right. Right. He was like, oh, my God, and I took Latin and everything. He was like, my brain is exploded. Like, that's it's the magic I mean, words, my man. I mean, it's nice to feel like the smartest person in your house sometimes. Ugh, that's all I Just can say. every so often I get that, and it feels, it's delicious. All right. <laughs> Question number two. We love you, Steve. (laughs) We love love Steve. Steve's way smarter than all of us. (laughs) Question number two. True or false, none other than actor Humphrey Bogart was the model for the famous Gerber baby who debuted in 1931. I'm going to say false on this. You're right. It's false. Um, The identity of the uh, the adorable babe was kept a secret for decades, which fueled rumors that the model was anyone from Bogey to Elizabeth Taylor. But in fact... Uh, it was the infant neighbor of the original illustrator Dorothy Hope Smith, who finally revealed herself in 1978. Yeah. I knew it was a. I knew it was a female. Yeah, her name's Ann Turner Cook, um, and she was a novelist and teacher. Good for and her. An, and an adorable, an adorable baby. baby. Oh my of god, the cutest baby. Uh, question number three: This bank robber who terrorized the Midwest as Public Enemy Number One was also a partner of the infamous John Dillinger and got his nickname from ostensibly being a short man with a handsome face. His friends just called him Jimmy, though. What doomed professional criminal am I talking about? I think his name was Baby Phillies. Baby, well, I'm gonna <laughs> take Barbara that again. He's just so drunk. <laughs> yeah, on coffee. Yeah, yeah. I think his name was Baby Face Nelson. His name was Baby Face Nelson. Um, his crime spree started at 12 when he Ugh. found a pistol and he shot a playmate in the jaw. So, so, Jesus. so he was just like born rotten. Born you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh. Uh, as a violent bank robber, Lester Joseph Gillis, which was his given name, uh, killed more agents of the FBI than has any other criminal. <laughs> my god uh in the event agents of the fbi fatally wounded and killed him in the battle of barrington on november 27th 1934 fought in a suburb of chicago illinois he was only 25 (laughs) he was a baby he was a bad bad apple he was a bad apple yeah it's no good all right question number four in 1980 eight week old azaria chamberlain went missing from an australian campsite while some believe that a dingo had taken a child as her parents claimed, the courts found Azaria's mother, Lindy Chamberlain Creighton, guilty of murder and sentenced her to life in prison. In 1988, a movie was made about this ordeal starring Meryl Streep. What was the name of this movie? 
All right. I might get it wrong. Um, it's something to the effect of a cry in the dark. But you I might have. Okay. You got it immediately. It's okay. called a cry in the dark. Apparently, I was like, is it the cry in the dark? Well, the cry in a dark, you know. Yeah, uh, I would have given it to you. Yeah, oh, thanks. Um, in Australia and New Zealand, it was released as Evil Angels for some reason. Oh, jeez. So our listeners down under, you may know this movie as Evil <laughs> Angels. <laughs> uh, Meryl got an Oscar nom for it, by the by. Um, later, uh, the real Lindy Chamberlain uh, was exonerated on all charges when a fragment of Azaria's clothing was found in an mm. area dotted with dingo lairs. However, many Australians still believe Lindy killed her child. So sad no matter what. Yeah, sad no matter what. That's terrible. Um, that's why no one should go in the outback. Uh, question number five. I don't know if they were in the outback. I shouldn't say that. Uh, singer, songwriter, and producer Babyface has written and produced over 26 number one R&B hits throughout his career and has won 12 Grammy Awards. Over his 45-year career in the business, he has worked with artists like TLC, Patti LaBelle, Lil Wayne, and this sensuous alto singer with whom he wrote the majority of her songs on her first two albums. Who is this another sad love song, Chanteuse? Um, can you sing another sad love song for me? Sure. It's just another sad love song looking in my, my way. way. Is it is it Tony Braxton? And I'm, yes, and I'm all torn up. Yeah, she looks. Can I tell you? Have you seen her recently? Incredible, incredible. Even she looks the, woman, the same as she did in the nineties. Same. She looks better than she does in the nineties. Even though the woman suffers from lupus twenty four seven, like she's oh always in pain. It's incredible. God bless her. Also, growing up in my house, it was Tony Braxton and Anita Baker in my house twenty four seven. What? <laughs> yes, I I am not kidding you. My mom loved nineties R and B. I'm. I have man, like no I idea. know whenever I hear Anita Baker now I'm like mom's clean in the house I can smell like <laughs> Lysol it's great <laughs> ask my sister she doesn't listen to this podcast but yeah she'll she'll back me up wow yeah uh question number six when 18 month old Texas toddler fell down a 22 foot well the entire country wet, rallied for her rescue difficult feat which took 58 hours was broadcast live on CNN Dubbed everybody's baby, she was pulled from the well on October 16th, 1987, and after 15 surgeries, she ultimately regained her full health with just a few lasting signs of her ordeal. Who is this well baby? Uh, I think we we all know and love her as baby Jessica. Baby Jessica. Um, also, I didn't realize that the opening of the goddamn well was only eight inches yeah. in diameter. That's 20 yeah. centimeters for those of you outside the U.S., what, I don't know how what, her head, what? how would her head get down there? She must have been very small. So she still managed to get stuck 22 feet down yeah. with her leg pinned up against her forehead. Yeah. She like did the full yeah. splits and was stuck there for 58 hours. So rescuers had to drill a parallel shaft to the well where yeah. Jessica was lodged. And then they had to drill another horizontal cross right. tunnel to get to her. Apparently, this is the cutest thing I've ever heard. Apparently, during the drilling, rescues could hear Jessica singing Winnie the Pooh. I know. To, like, comfort herself, soothe. It's so... I mean, she's fine now. She's fine now. 911 Lone Star, I think, did a did an episode that, oh, did you they? know, just echoed that whole story. But, yeah, mm -hmm. the, like, you know, we think of a well as, like, you know, yeah. made of stone. Big, and and like it has <laughs> stones around it and a little <laughs> yeah. bucket. You know, just... Yeah. Just why don't you just... You roll well, it you down and get the, the water bucket and bring it down up. to get to her. Yeah, uh, but yeah, like uh, wells in in Texas were, you know, again, like deep you said, eight small. inches wide, but like Ugh. fifty feet deep, and just unfathomable to to my brain. 
Yeah. By the way, the Wikipedia page for baby Jessica, one fascinating. Cause it gives you like a beat for beat. Yeah. Um, also, baby Jessica, she's 35 now. She's doing totally fine. She does yeah, not have she like a single a memory. EMT or like in the army or something. Like she went on yeah. to, I don't know. Yeah, she's like a paramedic or something. Yeah, yeah to like do that kind of thing. And uh, she retains no firsthand memories sure. of what happened to her. Good. You know, so she they had to like amputate her little toe because it like lost circulation. And she has like a scar on her forehead and that's it. Like she's wow. totally, totally fine. Good for her. Um, also, the see also on the Wikipedia page for baby Jessica is just a litany of people who are also stuck in wells. Oh, <laughs> that no. Did not, always, <laughs> did not always end well. So I went down. I mean, this quiz took me longer than usual because I went down the rabbit hole of people stuck in you wells. went down a bunch of wells. I did. I went down a bunch of wells and I followed these people and it was not good. And one guy who like ugh, got stuck in a cave. It's awful. Anyway, <laughs> babies, here we go. Question number seven. The 3D animation of a baby dancing the cha-cha was one of the first and most well-known viral videos of all time. Created in the late 90s using innovative 3D character animation technology, the video was a huge development in the internet technology, and the dancing baby went on to appear on multiple television shows, including this legal comedy drama series, which made liberal use of its fantasy sequences. That was, of course, Allie McBeal. Yeah, Allie McBeal. I never watched the show. Did you ever watch that show? It was... I think it was just a little too old for us. Yeah. You know, because uh, I think it ended in 2002 or something like that. Yeah. And I was like, I was like 16 in 2002. So yeah. I don't know. But by then, like no one liked Ellie McBeal anymore. I have also vague recollections of websites like AV Club talking about Ellie McBeal because it was huge at one point. It was very huge. Yeah. Um, it had also, a giant ensemble cast. I was going to say, it had a lot of famous people Robert in it. Downey like, Jr. was yes, on that show. Lucy Liu. Lucy Courtney Liu, Thorne Smith. Uh, Greg What's-His-Nuts. Uh, Greg Dow, I think his name is. Uh, James Marsden. Mm. Jane Krakowski. Yeah, Jane Krakowski. Yeah. Yep. They had a, They famously had like a, uh, a, a multi-sex bathroom or something. Yeah, it was a unisex bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. It was like sex. Some it, was it was sexy because like anybody could be in there. Was, <laughs> that's all I That's all I know about Allie McBeal. Calista Flockhart, obviously. Too, Calista but. Flockhart. Wife of Harrison Ford. Anyway. <clears throat> Question number eight. The third child of the late king of pop, Prince Michael Jackson II, was born in 2002 through the process of artificial insemination. Michael famously dangled his newborn child from the fifth floor window of a Berlin hotel, fueling a media frenzy that questioned his sanity and his ability to be a father. However, even to this day, he is referred to by the strange nickname given to him by MJ. What is Prince Michael's nickname? It's Blanket. Yeah, Blanket. Although at nearly 20, again, my bones are dust, he prefers the name BG or Biggie, B-I-G-I, I I guess. Hmm. It's the name he prefers. Um, He is also a climate change activist. So good for him. He's oh, using great. his powers for good. Yeah, I feel like um, I feel like we hear a lot about Paris. Sure, we don't hear too much about Prince One. <laughs> yeah, there's right? there's Prince, and then there's Prince Michael uh-huh. blanket. Uh huh. And Prince is the eldest, and he's yeah. been kind of like yeah. You don't really quiet. hear too like, much he about him a lot. They all have a ton of money though because oh. they all inherited from his estate. Oh, my they gosh. don't have to lift a finger, do anything. Mm-mm. All right, question number nine. 
1987 rom-com Dirty Dancing features a character nicknamed Baby, sure, but my question is about one of the songs featured in the film, the incomparable She's Like the Wind, written and sung by a true Renaissance man and star of the film. Who am I talking about? Is it She's Patrick like Sweezy? The wind. Is it, it Patrick is Patrick Sweezy? Sweezy. It's our boy P. Swayze. Who, so if you can't get enough yeah. of our boy, yeah, 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 please, yeah. please, please, please pre-order our good friend and podcast brother Neil Fisher's new book. Out in April, it's entitled Being Patrick Swayze, colon, Essential Teachings from the Master of the Mullet. It's, guys. We're so excited for him. We saw proofs. It's just, can I tell you, visually stunning, one. Hilarious, too. I mean, you need this Insightful. Book. Insightful. Stirring. Touching. Yes. It's wonderful. It's an emotional roller coaster that you need to, to experience over and over again. By having this book in your home. By having the time of your life. A, oh, this is all free. He did not pay us to say no, this. No, not so. at all. Not even a little bit. And also get ready for um, some, you know, some future collabos we may be having with, uh, with our, <laughs> with our <laughs> brother. Boy, Neil. Yeah. With our good brother, Neil. Okay. So yeah, we will link, um, we'll link to yes. uh, the pre-order link uh, in the episode. We'll do a post about it and, yeah, share share that link and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Please pre-order. It always uh, pre-orders are always good if you don't know already. Pre-orders are mm -hmm. great for authors because it tells the publisher that there is a demand for this book, and so there is more of a chance that Neil could get another book deal, yes. which we want, yes. which is what we want because he has tons of cool ideas and he should get his genius out into the world. You're welcome, Neil. Okay, <laughs> question number ten. The classic horror film Rosemary's Baby is about a young wife in Manhattan who suspects that her elderly neighbors are members of a satanic cult and are grooming her in order to use her baby for their rituals. Spoiler alert, he's the Antichrist. The film made a star of the doe-eyed, short-haired actress who played the titular Rosemary. Who is this quintessential 60s actress? And that is Mia Farrow. Mia Farrow, good job, Jewel. I think you got every single one boop, of these boop, questions boop, right. Boop, a couple of her guesses. That's okay. It doesn't matter. Um, Mia was married to Frank Sinatra at the time, and he served her divorce papers while they were filming. Oh, and Frank. because she was so upset about it, she almost dropped out, but she stuck around because uh, Roman Polanski, the director, puh, on his name, uh, told her that she'd get an Oscar nomination for the movie, but she didn't. So <gasps> so that was that. Oh, no, she didn't. <laughs> I know. She did um, get nominated for a Golden Globe, but she did not win it. <laughs> so <sighs> poor Mia Farrow. She's had a rough go. Anyway. So that was my inexplicable episode. <laughs> <laughs> Great job. It turned a little like MFM in there a little bit, but I feel yeah. like we have some listener overlap that uh, I feel like yeah. is probably appreciated. I think we've gotten some requests to do some murdery episodes and some murderers yep. before. And, and that's, and we were that's like, that's not usually our bag. <laughs> it's not usually, our, it really isn't. I yeah, mean, it's not, it's we did, true. I did an episode on serial killers like way back when. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's not, I mean, it's fun I mean there's to, other it, yeah, people. It's still, yeah, it's definitely still fun to explore and we love Absolutely. being able to recommend other podcasts who Shh. do some of these topics so much better than way better than we, we would. Could. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I think it was a great job. And I feel like we Thank got a you. lot of interesting stuff about, especially, uh, Lindbergh in there that yeah. could definitely, he wrote a bunch of Reader's Digest articles that were like, oh, yeah. uh, don't mix your blood with <laughs> like, like he was just like he was ruthless and at the time Ugh. which is strange because you know this is like the 30s where like there's rumblings of this in Europe and that kind of thing like 
American isolationism and, and I mean, eugenics were always terrible. Like n- n- you can't defend that. I'm not defending it at all, but <laughs> essentially what I'm Another saying is stand. like, <laughs> there are, there, th- there was conversations like this happening. He mm-hmm. wasn't the only person mm-hmm. who was like, Germany has That's some true. great ideas. You know, this is hindsight is 2020. Like, and apparently to his modicum of credit, he actually visited, I think Auschwitz afterwards. Oh, God. And he was like, who would do this to their people? Mm-hmm. He okay. was he was greatly affected by it. Okay. Um so he reconsidered. He reconsidered, but not enough to be like, mm-hmm. I was wrong. It was more like he kind of doubled down on a couple of things, which mm-hmm. is like, eh, come on, man. Mm-hmm. So wasn't a great guy. Um, I mean, anybody who supports Hitler is not a great person. <laughs> to say the very just, least. Wow, Lauren. This is <laughs> I know I'm dropping taking, dropping truth bombs. Stand after stand. I'm so controversial. <laughs> anyway, all right. I'm going to stop. Charles Lindbergh. But yeah, look it up. It's wild. Charles Lindbergh. All right. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Lauren. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening and sticking with us. Uh, we will catch you next time. Goodbye. Bye.